Hello, welcome back and Merry fucking Christmas. I am Mark, one of your hosts of Kino Inferno, your favourite movie podcast, and I am joined by... Oh, 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 it's me, Santa. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Fuck off. Oh, oh, fuck I'm off. just looking for somewhere to empty my sack. Get out of here. Now. Mm. Aiden, get him. Is that Santa again? Right, get over here, you. <laughs> Right, that's enough bits for this right. episode. <laughs> well, downside is you're not getting any presents, kids, because I've just murked Santa. I mean, you weren't getting any. Merry anyway. Christmas. But you know what you did, you little shit. No, you weren't. You weren't. Fuck off, I've got presents you know, under my tree. No, you're not talking to you, I'm talking to him. Oh. I mean, I'm getting presents. He pre- knows who he is. I'm getting presents. He knows who he is. He listens to every episode. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. You, you would never get any presents. You know why? Because your mum and dad don't love you. <laughs> and why should they? You know what? Why should they? Actually, why should they? Well, that's Piece of human garbage. Well, that was off to a flying start. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to <laughs> Kino Inferno. <laughs> we killed Santa and we slagged off the listeners. Classic Christmas special. I, I think honestly, we can just cut to credits there. But we won't. No, because um, we've got to talk about some Christmas movies. We do. Um, yes, it's Christmas twenty twenty three. This is our third Christmas special. Which is fucking insane. I can't believe we've got to this point. <laughs> People are still listening. Well, are they? Mm, well, well, no, they are. <laughs> they are. I don't know why, but they are. They sat I through. think whenever we get a spike in listeners, it's new listeners thinking that this might be a good film pro- podcast, and then they listen to like one episode and they're like, no. Yeah, they probably listened to that one episode where we made them listen to a whole Chaz and Dave song. <laughs> Which could happen again, right now. But we won't. Jokes on you if I just edited in an entire Chaz and Dave song. I think you probably did, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have no control over this. No, we've only had one Chaz and Dave song this year, I think. Uh, yes, but we did play it in its entirety, so that's like a lifetime in Chaz and Dave songs. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, no, this is the Christmas special. Crimbo Inferno 3D, The Revenge. Yes. Three fucking years we've been doing this, and it's finally time to bring the the trilogy to a close, because I'm finally getting to talk about Black Christmas 1974. And Aidan, what is it you're bringing to the table? The listeners already know. It's in the title. Gromlons. Gromlons. I'm bringing in Gromlons. Bring Gromlons starring, to starring Gosmo. You gonna do the rest of the cast or? <laughs> no, just Gosmo. He's just, the main guy. Just Gosmo, okay. Yeah, the main dude. Good actor. Very good actor. Shame battled the drug abuse. And the very limited career. Yep. You're quite right, Mark. You are covering. It's the end of a majestic trilogy. Um, the Black Christmas trilogy. Which is a trilogy. Why? Why is it a trilogy? Like, we've already established in the previous two Crimbo Infernos why this should not be a trilogy. Hmm. But today we're going back to the sauce. The thick, creamy sauce that I love so much. The brandy sauce. The, on your Christmas yeah. bud. Because it's Christmas. It's been a long year. Just play the clip. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Who is this? 
God's sake, what are you doing? I know what you did, Billy! Filthy Billy! 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 Stop this! So, Black Christmas is a 1974 Canadian slasher movie directed by the late, great Bob Clark, uh, written by A. Roy Moore, and also, I believe, co-written by Bob Clark as well. Um, so, this is very much one of the proto-slashers, which obviously we did an episode on before, but we didn't talk about this one because we had to save it for Crimbo Inferno because we'd already kind of set all that bullshit up by talk looking about the lesser Black Christmas movies. Um, and I think it's been said on this show before that... The original Black Christmas is my favourite horror movie. And I've kind of held it in that title for many, many years. So obviously I'm very excited to talk about it. Uh, but Aiden, what was your relationship to Black Christmas 1974 prior to this? Other than it's watching rubbish. the two shit ones. It's rubbish, mate. No, no. <laughs> I, I think oh, I'd seen it once. <laughs> I think I'd seen it once before. I think I um, can't really remember when. Um, I feel like it was before our university days, maybe, but um, yeah, this is the first time I've seen it for a long time. Cool. So, it's my tradition, which I broke this year for this show, so you fuckers listening, you better appreciate this, because I'm probably going to get some bad luck for this, like, I'm going to get shanked in the street or something, something bad's going to happen, I'm going to blame you. That'd happen anyway, because of all those boys you stabbed. Uh, well, yeah, but they had it coming, so it was a very, very different uh, kettle of fish there. Well, I'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Well, fuck the listeners. We've already established this. We made them listen and to the Chaz courts. and Dave. <laughs> huh? And the courts. Oh, I also yes. decide. Yeah. And the courts. Um, so, yeah, I broke tradition for this this year. Typically, my Christmas tradition is this on Christmas Eve, bottle of red, get my friends around, let's watch Black Christmas. And it's become such an ingrained tradition that when I mention to people, oh yeah, it's Christmas Eve, we're going to watch Black Christmas, I've genuinely had people go, oh for fuck's sake, Mark, not this again. Why do we have to do this every year? And I'm like, there's a, it's tradition, and if you don't That's like it, on brand. get the fuck out of my house. No. Um, it's become a, something I mean, of a tradition. So um, Somehow this has become a tradition, not Black Christmas, but the similar thing happens in my house, where at some stage during the, the main three Christmas days, um, my father will force us to watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but it's always playing at Christmas for some ungodly reason. It's always on one of the channels on every... It's either on Christmas Eve, Boxing Day. Oh, it's actually it's always on all three days on Channel 5, I think. Okay, I've but never um, seen it. It's actually about or set at Christmas. No. <laughs> that's it's even better. It's just a musical. It's just a musical. And you know what it is? It's a musical about a man who um, has seven brothers. Mm-hmm. He wants to marry them off. So naturally, he does what all right-thinking people do. He abducts seven women from the local village and forces them to marry his brothers. And if that's not the spirit of Christmas, I don't know what is. It's Um, like three hours long. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I know what I'm watching this Christmas. (laughs) That's so weird. Why is that on a Christmas? I think because it's... More so, why is your dad insistent on watching that, Chris? (laughs) These are mysteries that we may never know the answer to. We simply may never know, and... (laughs) Well, um, so, Black Christmas. Let's let's just sort of get into the meat and potatoes of Black Christmas. So, yeah, it's one of those sort of proto-slasher movies. It predates Halloween by about four years, and we've kind of established previously, like, Halloween is, like, the de facto template for what a slasher movie would be. We had movies that came before, but... That's kind of the... We should talk about Halloween one day. 
We should. We should. For mm. an ungodly amount of time, we should talk about Halloween. Yeah, we should do, like, several episodes on it until I lose the will to live. Like, several episodes which have just as much in terms of diminishing returns as that franchise does. I don't think that's true. I think we, we, we get better and better with each one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, we'll let the courts decide. <laughs> um... Yeah, so Black Christmas, um, set at Christmas, shockingly, who'd have thought. Mm. Um, it's set in a sorority house in Canada, uh, somewhere in Canada, I'm not entirely sure where. I know it has a setting, I'm not sure. I should know, it's my favourite film. Favourite horror film, whatever. Um, so, basically, it starts with a group of sorority girls that's having a bit of a party, and unbeknownst to them, an unseen killer sneaks into their house, he climbs up a trellis and into their attic, and they are none the wiser. So effectively, the whole setup of this movie is you've got a group of sorority girls who are all sort of getting ready to go home for the Christmas break. So everyone's sort of having like one last party, packing up their belongings. And so when this killer then starts to advance on them and pick them off one by one, nobody seems to be aware of the killer in the house. And they just assume that anybody that has been murdered has either just gone to bed or has left. So we have a really good like setup for, you know, isolating characters. Um, so at the start of this movie, we're introduced to a couple of characters. We have Jess, played by Olivia Hussey, with the strangest accent. Yeah, I've very seen bizarre. Movie for a, I mean, it's she has a she, she's accent. she's Argentine English. We found out as we as I was yes, researching we did. the film, and, and she has a very strange kind of transatlantic accent where, like, she sounds quite clipped in English, but she is also very like the vowels kind of go all over the place. It's very interesting to listen to. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit Kate Bush Wuthering Heights in places, you know what I mean? Yeah. Although, interestingly, when, when we found out she was Argentine English, it made sense to me because um, Anya Taylor-Joy is also Argentine English, and her natural speaking voice is very similar. Uh, she's, a little oh, husk, okay. she's a little huskier, but she definitely has that kind of transatlantic kind of, like, you can't quite place it. It sounds sort of English, but yeah, not quite Yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, we have Jess played by Olivia Hussey. So because like this movie's surprisingly dense on the plot front for a slasher movie, so I'll sort of introduce these characters and sort of give you a bit of what all their business is. Because as you pointed out to me, Aiden, everyone's got business in this movie. Oh, it's business all over the calf. Yeah, like surprising amount of business going on. So you've got Jess, who is a college student who has recently discovered that she is pregnant, and she has told her boyfriend, who is a uh, he's studying at a conservatory, he's like a musician. And um, he doesn't want her to get rid of the baby, but her being a young college student, she's like, look, I don't want to have a baby. I've still got dreams. I've still got ambitions. I want to get rid of it. Which, you know, fair play. You know, you do you. Your body, your choice. And he doesn't take too kindly to that. And he kind of becomes a red herring throughout the movie because we're sort of led to believe that he could be this person that's killing them, even though we know it's some weirdo in the attic. Yeah, we know it's definitely not this guy. Though. That's the thing. Yeah, but I think ultimately, like, the point of the movie is not to convince us that it's him. He he serves a different purpose in the narrative. Um, so we have Jess. Uh, we then have Barb, played by the late, great Margot Kidder, who is, for lack of a better word, fucking fabulous at this movie. This is my favourite Margot Kidder performance. Um, Our whole Barb is- raison d'etre in the film is just to be an issue. She's just drunk the whole time, yeah. instigating constantly. Um, like... Genuinely, the only scene in this movie where she doesn't have a drink in her hand is when she's in bed because she's too drunk. Yeah, like that is literally. She, she's got a drink in one hand and a fag in the other. And at one point, she's trying like to this... make a, ch- a young child drink alcohol, which is interesting. 
Uh, she also has a monologue <laughs> so, yeah. about how turtles can come for ages. Yeah. Um, she also, like, one bit that I noticed this time around, I don't know why I've never noticed it before, because I watch this film every year, but, like, when they're in the police station at one point, she just pulls a beer out of her handbag and <laughs> just starts pounding one down. And you know what? I respect that. That's a move. Um, so, yeah, Barb's, like, your sort of almost stereotypical party girl like she's just constantly getting hammered she's just all about the party life of university that's what she's about um you've then also got phil who she probably gets a little bit less development in the movie she's kind of the more slightly straight laced one um kind of like the voice of reason almost like the the sort of not exactly the mother of the house because there is a mother of the house and we'll talk about her in a minute uh there's also phil who is probably one of the more less developed characters but also um she's kind of the more sort of straight laced i suppose like you see that she does party a little bit she does have a boyfriend but like she's not in like a a predicament like jess and she's also not out of control like barb is like she's kind of just more sort of straight down the middle i suppose uh we've then also got claire who is um she's in the not in the movie for long which we'll get to um but she's kind of shown to be very sort of sweet and almost innocent she's dating a local guy from the town and uh, it's kind of implied that she might not be like from sort of more upper class families like what a lot of these sorority girls are she might be on like a scholarship or something uh then we also have the mvp of this movie mrs mac the house mother ada what are your thoughts on mrs mac I mean, Mrs. Mack is doing a lot of business in this movie. Every scene she's so every scene different. she's in, she's proper like yucking it up. She's like slagging off the cat and just like she's got booze hidden all around the house. I like the bit where the it's one of my favourite running jokes in this movie. The, <laughs> it's, uh, like, yeah, she's got like booze in books strange and stuff, places to yeah. hide alcohol. And she's it's it's the the one in the book is great. The bit where she hides it in the toilet cistern. Mm on like a string that she pulls out it's quite dubious at best I like with the bit where she's covering up the post, the poster that features a butthole um, <laughs> yeah. one of the girls dads comes around yeah I liked Mrs. Mac she was funny she's a great character but we also got some other characters as well like Claire's dad is a character because uh, he comes to the house to look, look for Claire when she goes missing and his uh, main bit is to just be the... like oh, well I never yeah, he's like sort of appalled by the the sort of university life, and then outside of that, you've got like the local police force, um, the main one of which is uh, Lieutenant Fuller, who is played by the great John Saxon, um, who passed away recently, recent-ish, I believe. Or was that further back than I thought it was? No, no, I just looked it up. Twenty twenty, John Saxon passed away, so fairly recently. Um, that's our sort of main sort of cast of characters. So just to sort of move through the plot a little bit, because we don't want to jump all over the map on this movie. So start of the movie, girls are having a party, unseen killer breaks in. This is where we get our first of the obscene phone calls in the movie. So this is a big part of this movie, and one of my favourite parts of this movie. So, Aiden, how would you describe the phone calls? Really sexually exciting and erotic. Okay, you have problems. <laughs> and you need to see a professional. <laughs> um, no. F- for a film of its time, the phone calls in this are quite something, I think. Yeah. Like, it's pretty straight out the gate. The, the guy's like, I'm going to lick your pussy or whatever. Yeah, like, uh, there's a repeated use of the pra- phrase pretty pink cunt, which is still yeah, shocking pretty now. pretty pink cunt. Yeah, it's a bit... Um, it's, it's a bit much. Yeah, and what I kind of like about the first phone call is, like, uh, Olivia Hussey answers the phone in the most iconic fashion possible. 
because her answering the phone in this movie is she does it the exact same so. way every time. She's a, she always starts with hello, hello, hello. Pardon? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of pardon. <laughs> I just want to point out that like we are clearly like riffing on Olivia Hussey here, but like I think she's great at this movie. I really do. Um, so yeah, like the, they get one of the phone calls, and that's when Olivia, Jess, Olivia Hussey's character is like, "Everyone, gather around, gather around." It's it's him again, the Mono, because like clearly this has happened. Before. Say it how Olivia Hussey. And I love this. Scene. It's him. The Mona. <laughs> she really does. It's the strangest thing. She really does sound like some kind of like nineteen forties, golden age of Hollywood actress throughout this movie. Up against Margot Kidder, who's there. Like, who's like, I watch these turtles. Have yeah, who's like the greasiest, <laughs> just being like, what's all this a boot, eh? And being fucking pissed up on beer the whole time. It's a weird clash of styles, but it works wonders for me personally. Um, but what I like about this opening phone call is like all the girls gather around, and there's this like really great sort of like tracking shot as you're hearing all this filth the killer is saying. But then like you see the reactions of each of the girls in turn, and I think that does a, a really good job of like establishing like their personalities because Jess is clearly very afraid. Phil is like, "What the fuck is this?" Uh, Claire is mortally disturbed by it. Barb is having a great time. Barb is enjoying this. <laughs> like, she, like, she gets one of oh, my yeah, favourite lines where they're like, oh, uh, that could be more than, that has to be more than one person. She's like, yeah, no, it's the local Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call, which is a great line. And then we get one of my favourite moments in the movie where, as the killer keeps going on about, you know, licking her pretty pink cunt. I, I'm so sorry to the listeners that I keep saying that. Um, He's not. He wants to say it as many times I'm going to say it so many times. Um... He likes to say it when he's ringing people un- unannounced as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Mark has made many obscene phone calls. We've tried to get him to stop, but he just he simply... Won't. I just keep changing my number. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. Uh, no, but one of my favourite moments in this movie, and like, uh, I'm hoping you caught it because it is quite quiet in the sound mix. I don't know which version of the movie you watched, but I was fortunate enough to buy this on uh, gorgeous... 4K transfer recently, which is absolutely stunning, and I'm so very happy. How many copies of this do you own? Um, currently two. I did have three, but I got rid of the the DVD of it years ago. It's one of those movies that I've kind of upgraded as time has gone on because I, I love it so much. So, um, but yeah, the 4K is absolutely stunning. I fully recommend it if you can get you. When you can get movies in pill form, he's going to get black. Christmas. Oh yeah, 100%. Like I'm, I'm tempted to try and buy a VHS of it just because I want it. You know, I'm that kind of sad person. When it's a big laser, when movies are just big lasers that you shoot into your brain, it's going to get. I'll black have it. More. I'll have Black Christmas on brain laser. Yeah. Can't wait. Uh, but no, one of my favorite. You know the movies that come in pill form. Do you think they'll be taken orally or as a suppository? Um, probably orally, but I'm hoping for the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I think Black Christmas would definitely be a suppository. One hundred. This is a a surprisingly grotty yet not that graphic movie. It's one of the like, yeah. There's not a lot of explicit violence, but it is grumble. Oh yeah, like it's it's got a real like perverse and foreboding atmosphere, which is what I love the most about. It, which again is like kind of exemplified in this clip that I've been trying to explain for the last two minutes, um, in which yeah, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in which, yeah, you have this really obscene phone call and then Barb grabs the phone and is just like, oh, you're a fucking creep. And then just really quietly over the phone, you hear the killer just go, I'm going to kill you. 
and just hangs up. And like that moment, no matter how many times I see this movie, just like chills me to my core. Like it's so horrible. And I love it. That's how Mark ends all of his phone calls. It's it's true. It's true. I'm like, yeah, bye, Mum, bye. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, power move. But from there, I only um, do it on business on business calls as a power move. Uh, yeah, it really is. Um, we then have a bit of an argument between Barb and Claire because Barb's obviously taking it a bit far and kind of being very, um, what's the term? Bitchy. Drunk. Drunk. <laughs> Um, I've already said the word enough. Cuntish, I suppose you could say. Um, Goodness me. She, Mark, you can't say that on the radio. Claire goes upstairs, the rest of the girls kind of chastise Barb, but Barb's too busy getting drunk to even care about Claire's feelings. Claire goes upstairs, unbeknownst to her, the killer is in her closet. And the killer starts impersonating a cat, which he does several times throughout the movie as well. He starts pretending he's the house cat that they have, whose name is Claude. Um, he lures Claire into the closet where he gets some plastic sheeting which keeps over her clothes and he suffocates her with it. And for the rest of the movie, Claire's corpse is kept in a rocking chair with the plastic over her face and very graphically, like, it's in her mouth, like, showing the suffocation, which is a a nice little touch from Bob Clark there. Um, And her body is just displayed in the attic window for the rest of the movie. And that's what I love is, like, throughout the whole movie, everyone's, like, they're forming search parties to look for Claire, uh, but, like, she's just there in that window <laughs> the entire time. Like, nobody looks up. I think that's kind of great about this movie. Um, I won't dwell too much on the plot because there's, there's a fair bit, but essentially um, Claire's dad comes along and he's a kind of appalled uh, with the conditions at the sorority house. He's there, like, I didn't send my daughter here to drink and pick up boys, and Mrs. Mack tries to defend her, but obviously Mrs. Mack's just a massive pisshead, so she doesn't care what the girls do. By Mrs. Mack's own admission, uh, these broads would hump the Leaning Tower of Pisa if they could get up there, which is another great line <laughs> of dialogue. <laughs> I love the term broad. Yeah, like... <laughs> we need to bring that back into common parlance. Uh, so essentially, uh, Mrs. Mack is then killed uh, by the killer. She goes up into the attic and uh, he flings a crane hook at her mouth, which uh, pulls her up into the attic and she's kind of draped and displayed. Um, and then from there, the police form a search party, not only looking for Claire, but uh, a woman in the town reports that her 13 year old daughter has gone missing. And it's kind of very heavily implied that the same killer has killed her. But it's one yeah, thing that's I like kind about of a weird element of this movie is like it's not amazingly clear if if Billy killed the little girl as well it's just kind of like that's just another detail yeah but we'll, we'll, we can talk about this now I suppose because like they talk about at the end of the movie that the killer makes a phone call after every murder hmm. so at the beginning of the movie he hasn't killed anybody on screen so you yeah, can interpret so from that girl, that yeah. he's killed the girl in the park on the way to the sorority house, which is why he makes the phone call. Obviously, that's not explained, but that's kind of one of the biggest strengths of Black Christmas, I think, is that there's a lot of stuff going on around the the main plot, and not all of it is fully explained or really dwelled upon, but there's yeah, there's a lot going on. I really quite like that. Um, so the search party finds the little girl. Awful. Uh, we don't see it, but it's implied that he's done something truly, truly heinous to her. Um, back at the sorority house, um, essentially the killer just starts knocking him off. He kills Barb in a fantastic scene uh, in which Christmas carolers come to the door. 
And uh, while she's passed out drunk in bed, he the killer stabs her to death with a glass unicorn. Uh, and her cries are drowned out by the carolers. Fantastic scene. Uh, Phil is then killed not long afterwards when she goes upstairs to check on Barb and she's sort of killed off screen. Uh, and then Jess is the lone survivor in the house. So before we talk about the finale of this movie, which I know is definitely the part of the movie that you seem to have enjoyed the most from the messages you sent me when talking about Black Christmas. Um, what are your thoughts on the movie? Like, what you know, what do you like about this? Because obviously my thoughts on it are very clear. What do you mm. think about this? Yeah, no, I, I liked it. I mean, I hadn't seen it for um, for many years, actually. Um, especially compared to the previous two episodes we've done on the um, the, the two remakes. Um, I thought what was interesting about it, especially compared to the 2006 remake, is like, it's not really a slasher film in the sense of that, obviously this kill is like, you know, the killer kind of methodically working through the, the, the cast of uh, <laughs> new Bal young women. So in that sense, it does, um, you know, it, it follows the tropes that you would expect. But most of the film is about them just kind of like doing whatever. Like a lot of the film is about Jess's drama with her boyfriend in several scenes that are shot like, I was saying like a Brazilian soap opera. There's a lot of uh, Olivia Hussey turning dramatically away from her boyfriend into camera and being like, well, I just don't love you anymore. You know. And, um, and him being like, Jess, we're going to get married and uh, we're going to be a family. And she's like, no, I I wish to be whatever the fuck it is I'm studying. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. Yeah, all no, right. it is good. And um, I thought, you know, there's a lot of humour and... Um, Especially with yeah, with characters like Barb, who is quite funny, Margot Killer's character, um, and Mrs. Mack, as we've mentioned. But yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, um, especially compared to so comparing it to the two thousand and six movie, it's like it's nowhere near as gratuitously grotty as that. That is quite filthy. It's still kind of like a lot of it's more about it's the implication, and I think it kind of lingers on what the girls would be feeling more so than, like, the violence and everything. And don't get me wrong, there is yeah. violence in this movie, but it's not, like, what you would think of is you know, gratuitous 2006 torture porn violence. The mm. violence is quite stylized, and it's mostly kind of kept off camera, apart from, you know, you see a few blood splatters here and there. But, um, really, I thought what was effective about it was that thing of, yeah, it lingers on the kind of tension that the girls are feeling like in the I mean we're going to get to the climax in a minute but in this most famous scene of the movie the, the calls are coming from in the house scene where the police realise that Billy's been in the house the whole time and um, obviously uh, Jess is in danger like that scene whenever you see it parodied is always very melodramatic but I think what's kind of cool in this movie is like you see the cops realise like because they're trying to trace the call you see them kind of be like yeah oh, the, the calls are coming from inside the house, the guy's in the house, and then you see them going through the rigmarole of like, okay, call Jess, tell her to get out, but don't freak her out, don't tell her the guy's in there, because she'll go back upstairs and, you know, try and get somebody else, just tell her to get out. And you see that kind of like very, like realistic and logical progression, but then of course when the guy rings her, he can't, he can't not tell her. Because she's kind of freaking yeah. out. She's kind of saying, oh, well, I don't want to leave. And he kind of has this crisis where he's like, okay, look, the killer's in the house, just get out. Which, of course, is what leads to her actually having to be like, 
but there's people upstairs, so I need to get, you know. And all of that I thought was very um, realistic in a sense that you don't normally get yeah. in these films. Where it's like, I understand why she's putting herself in danger, which is something that obviously is cliche of slasher movies where you're kind of like, why are you making this decision? That's a stupid decision. Like, what are you doing? Whereas actually, I think most of these characters, as much as they have their own quirks and foibles, none of them act gratuitously stupidly. And the ones that do, there's a, a reason for it. Like, well, like Barb's just a pisshead. Like she's just drunk the whole time. <laughs> or, um, yeah. Yeah, but, and I actually thought one thing that was interesting was um, as the movie goes on, it becomes clear that Jess is, well, if you're a slasher person, it becomes clear that Jess is, you know, the final girl, which is a, a trope that I think people make too much of, to be clear. Mm. But in this movie, yeah. it's kind of interesting, especially considering this movie was such an influence on Halloween. Uh, Halloween it really is the kind of trope codifier for this notion of like the virginal final girl um, not that that's necessarily we talked about this on the Halloween episode but not yeah, that that's yeah, necessarily yeah. the movie's fault but that's what a lot of the imitators took from it's like oh we want the final girl to not be a slut quote unquote not do drugs not drink yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff what I thought was interesting about Jess is by the standards of the time this was made in 1974 as a character that in most of the movies would be regarded as like for one of you know pardon the pun a bit of a hussy um and uh you know because she's knocked her up and she wants an abortion and all this kind of stuff and like yeah this is a character that it's easy for us to look at and go yeah well you know most people have pro-choice in this day and age and or at the very least most people have that attitude of like well i wouldn't get an abortion but if someone else does i'm not going to judge you know obviously there's still issues with this stuff in certain places but like it's very interesting that like this movie came out I think the same year or a year after the Roe vs. Wade uh, judgment in uh, in the USA uh, with regard to uh, legalising abortion. Um, I mean, I'm just currently looking that up. Yeah, please before. do. Uh, yeah, 1973, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this would have been a year after. It would have been made at the point. Yeah, so it's kind of hot off the presses kind of stuff. And I thought that was interesting, yeah. especially in comparison to Black Christmas 2019 which is trying so yeah. hard to be like contemporary issues we're going to talk about it and everyone on that movie is always talking about contemporary issues they're never talking about anything else they're always talking about mm. uh, you know toxic uh, masculinity they're always talking and talking about it in those terms as well you know talking about it in those very twittery terms that people don't really use in day to day life um, which I was, what I thought was interesting about this film by comparison is like it is very very much being like trying to make you sympathise with this character who's um, you know wants an abortion doesn't want to get married uh, you know isn't in love with this guy has just had sex with him and is in an unfortunate position right which yeah. for the time is incredibly progressive because this is a character that even yeah. in like 80 slasher movies would have been bumped off early doors would have been like the it's, like I said yeah, would have been the amazing, quote unquote slut like, character you know yeah, it's kind of amazing to me, and I think I I may have mentioned this on the the twenty nineteen Black Christmas episode, but like, it's kind of incredible that a film from nineteen seventy four is far more progressive in its depiction of female characters than a movie from twenty nineteen that's kind of basing its whole ethos around those. I think ideas. the thing is, in I this mean, movie, the female characters are actual characters. They're not yes, just I'd stock. Agree, uh, like, because in the two thousand six movie, they're just stock slasher characters waiting to get killed, right? Yeah. In the twenty nineteen movie, yeah, they're just they're, mouthpieces yeah. for the writer and director's uh, ideologies right like 
they're not characters. You don't relate to them in that way. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe within the 2019 one, you can relate to Imogen Poots because of what she's been through and all this kind of stuff. But like, yeah, of course, and she's the closest yeah. that movie has to an actual character. Yeah, but I think the yeah. problem with that movie is it's trying so hard to make a point that it loses sight of like any kind of emotional truth that the characters can convey. Yeah, well, there's a, a quote here which I'm going to read from Wikipedia, um, because obviously we do our research in the, the most respected places on this show, uh, in which Bob Clark, because uh, basically, yeah, this movie, as I say, was written by uh, A. Roy Moore, who supposedly his original script was much more straightforward exploitation, like a, just a proper like slasher movie that was just like girls in house, killer in attic, slash, slash, slash. Apparently, Bob Clark was the one that introduced a lot of the humour to it. Obviously, Bob Clark being, you know, he did uh, the Christmas Story Porkies, obviously, <laughs> you know, like, you know, very uh, prolific Canadian director. High, high brass and, stuff. Uh, there's, a, there's a weird parallel with Porkies in this movie yeah. as well, actually, which I noticed. Um, but no, Bob Clark, he says, uh, says here, Clark felt that college and high school students had not been depicted with any sense of reality in American film, and that he intended to capture the astuteness of young adults. And the quote from him is, college students, even in 1974, are astute people. They're not fools. It's not all bikinis, beach blankets, and bingo, which is completely fair and the best way to approach the material, I think. And it's I particularly want to draw reference to the humour in this movie, because this is a thoroughly Canadian movie in its humour, I think. Because, like, there are entire scenes of this movie that are just set pieces for jokes, and it's kind of one of my favourite aspects of the film, is that it is so funny, because I think it makes the horror that much more effective, because the humour really disarms you in a lot of the scenes. Like, there's stretches of this movie where you could watch it and think it's, like, a, another sort of Christmas story-style movie, where it's just, like, sorority house, and there's capers, and then, oh shit, there's a killer in the house. Like... And I think what works so well about it is that all the comedy scenes are directed and played as comedy scenes, and they are effective and they're funny. But then when the movie goes, no, 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 this is a horror movie, it's handled and portrayed and completely played like a horror movie. And I think that's why I love it so much, is I think it juxtaposes horror and comedy. I think you can only really get away with that if your characters feel like actual people or actual characters, you know? Yeah. Like, um, you know, if you look at a character like Barb, I think what's interesting, aside from Margot Kidder's performance being, you know, fairly likable, I think the thing that's interesting about her character, she's not a major character. Obviously, she stands out to us because it's Margot Kidder. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, she's she gets a compared to Phil, she gets a lot more. Screen yeah, time, yeah. I but again, I think she stands out because it's Margot Kidder more so than the the, the character as well. Yeah, and her performance is so um, fantastic. Yeah. But uh, but that said, I think what's interesting about that character is like. Yeah, she's kind of the like, oh, she's a comedy drunk and like she's always saying inappropriate things and all the rest of it. I mean, you come to like her because she's she, you know, she is funny and like she has, she's kind of a tough broad, you know. But um, but also they do yeah. allow some drama to seep in. Like it's clear that Barb's drinking is a problem. That she is a problem drinker, and like the fact that they can play that mm-hmm. both for laughs and for because the scene where they like go to bed, you're drunk. Like that is that's like a, that's quite a you know it's a serious scene like she's obviously, and it's played by the girl who plays Phil as like, this is obviously not the first time they've had to be like go to bed you drunk you know yeah and um, yeah yeah so I think you know it, again I just keep thinking back to the 2019 one which I know we've dumped on enough but like, it just goes to show if you write actual characters, who have actual problems mm. that you can kind of think about and relate to like. 
you can make those social points if you want to, and you can really amp up. Because that's the other thing that's missing from the 2019 movie is like, I mean, I'm kind of disregarding the 2006 one because that's like barely a movie, so it's not even worth talking about. But like, so no, but yeah, yeah, I I enjoy the 2006 movie for so what if, it is. If the movie, if fans but, of the 2019 one are listening, like, you know it's some degree of praise that I'm talking about that more in comparison than I am the 2006 one because I just kind of disregard yeah. the 2006 <laughs> one entirely but um, anyway yeah the 2019 one I think the thing about it is like that the, the kind of stands out uh, against this one is like there are no characters in that that you can zero in on and you can kind of go like with the exception of maybe Imogen Poot's character but I think she brings a lot to it performance wise but the fact is, there's that one character yeah. you can sympathise with, and the movie doesn't really sympathise with her. Whereas, I think what's interesting mm. about this movie yeah. is, like, whilst it shows all the girls are kind of, like, flawed people and have made bad decisions, and they're kind of... or have been just kind of put into difficult positions, you never get the sense that it's asking you to kind of cast judgement on them. Like... Even the death scenes not being gratuitous, I think, is an example of that. Where, like, the typical thing with the 80s slasher movies, like your Friday the 13th or whatever, is like, you know, it's all these kind of. It's the, it's the trope of the asshole victims, right? Where, like, all the victims. And that's kind of what's yeah. fun about a Friday the 13th yeah. movies, like, all the victims are kind of dickheads. And you kind of know which one's going to be the yeah. final girl, final boy, because they're the ones who aren't dickheads. And that's kind of the, the, the trope, right? Whereas I think what's interesting about this movie is, like, all the deaths feel more horrible even though you don't see much um, gore and you don't see much violence because yeah. like you've got attached to these characters or you, you or you or at least you remembered yeah. them they're memorable you know? they all have a bit of business or they all have a bit of something going on that you're kind of like um, you know that even, even when Barb dies you, you do feel like it, it doesn't because Barb is a character that in a lesser movie would be oh she's the asshole drunk who no one likes but in this movie, it's clear yeah. that everyone likes it. It's just that she goes too far. Yeah, because um, the early on, her character is quite is set up quite nicely, I think, because um, it's the it's very early in the movie when the killer is first broken into the house, and we're seeing through his POV as he makes his way into the attic, and at the same time, Barb is on the phone to her mother, and she's having you only hear Barb's side of the conversation, but it's very implied that her mother has got a new boyfriend, she's not interested in spending Christmas with her daughter, so Barb's like, oh, I guess I'll just go get some of my friends and we'll go skiing, and it, yeah, it kind of paints this picture that Barb is from a rich family where her mother just doesn't really give a shit about her because she's too busy shagging a new boyfriend, and Barb's kind of left to fend for herself, which is kind of where her drinking stems from. Yeah, it's but a very it sets up that scene, character so that you like her as well, does that's the thing. wonders. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you like her even more when you see her just being an absolute degenerate, like, um, like one of the most pivotal things that Barb does in the plot, actually, like she's basically responsible for the killer getting away with it for as long as he does and not being discovered because she has the scene where she winds up uh, the police officer at the station when he asks for the number of the house. And I haven't looked this up because I don't understand the, the like, it's a funny scene, but I don't understand the logistics of it where she gives the new exchange code for the phone and she says it's fellatio and she says, oh, it's a new exchange, F-E. So she gives the cop, he, he writes down fellatio followed by some numbers, and that's why they don't cross-reference um, the calls going to the house, because Barb was pissed and played a joke. So like her actions actually directly lead to her death, effectively. 
which I also I do like the um, speaking of the social um, commentary in this movie and the cops like you do the cops are kind of interesting in the way they're portrayed because they are portrayed as like they don't take the girls seriously at first when they come in and start talking about obscene phone calls and all the rest of it and it's only when and even when they report the uh, Claire has gone missing yeah they just fob them off yeah they're yeah. just kind of like oh she's probably just like you know off somewhere with her boyfriend in a cabin or something and it's which they say to her boyfriend by the yeah way. yeah like, and it's only when the situation starts to develop that they start to take it more seriously but at the same time I think what's kind of interesting in the way this movie portrays them is that they're not cartoonishly inept I mean there's the one cop yeah. who takes the, the fellatio exchange code thing but it, I like that they include the scene where the other cops bust his balls for it because yeah. obviously so they go like oh what's the, ex- what's the you know the exchange code or whatever and he goes, oh, it's fellatio. And they're all, like, cracking up because they obviously know that she's... Yeah. And they, you know, it's kind of it's kind of endearing in a way, even though these cops are kind of dickish to them at first. It's kind of funny that they're there, like, oh, she gave you that, did they? She, and, like, you know. <laughs> and what I like the most is that, um, that police officer, Nash, I believe his name is, um, obviously he's the one who takes the fellatio code and then, like, he obviously gets his balls busted, but he is the one at the end that has to tell... Jess that the calls are coming from inside the house so like even though he's been shown to be an inept cop throughout this movie he gets this chance at the end which arguably he blows because he does tell her but only because she's saying I'm gonna go upstairs yeah. so again, it's I, that I, thing I, I like his like, little arc in the it's movie. that thing if they're all they feel like real characters and yeah they all have real flaws like mm. the cops have oh. even though the cops are minor characters they, you get the sense that they're like characters who interact with each other daily and also, they yeah. all have their own blind spots and they all have their own flaws. Like, it's the main detective yeah. who's like, oh, it's probably Jess's boyfriend who's up to it. Which is, like, such yeah. a wrong-headed thing. <laughs> it's, you know, but... Yeah, because, but also, like, again, I just think this is such a well-written movie, not only in terms of its characters, but in terms of its plot. Because, yeah, you've got that thing with Barb doing uh, the fellatio gag, which ultimately, like, throws the cops off for a while. The whole red herring of Jess's boyfriend possibly being the killer is informed by the scene where after she tells him that she wants an abortion, he she tells him on like the day that he's got his big recital, which is part of his like studies, and he blows it because obviously he's so distracted. Um, and then he gets a, a dumbbell, or like a barbell, should I say, and, like smashes the piano up, so when the police go onto his trail and find the smashed up piano, that yeah, obviously it implies leads him down the wrong violence. Path, yeah. Like it's, yeah, and it's, it's, like, it's just such a well-plotted movie, and... I think when you get to that eventual reveal of the calls are coming from inside the house, which obviously is nowadays is so well-worn, it's unbelievable, but as you say, it works in this movie, but I feel like you almost kind of get to a point with the film where you become so engrossed in what's going on in it. The idea that those calls are coming from upstairs doesn't really occur, yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way. Like, like even though you know that makes sense. Yeah, because you, you literally see Billy, it. the killer, crawling in through the window at the start. Yeah, which... It's just yeah. I just think it's such a well plotted. It's movie. kind of like, similar. The, the, the only thing I can compare it fantastic. to, which is similar, is the sequence in um, Silence of the Lambs, where you, mm, you know where the yes. SWAT team are supposedly going to Buffalo Bill's house, and um, yeah. uh, Jodie Foster's going elsewhere, and it's cut so that you think that, but then obviously the reveal is that she's at Buffalo Bill's house and they're somewhere else. Yeah. Like. Yeah. That's something that's been done to death in subsequent films. But the way it's executed yeah. in that film is so spot on that even though you've seen it millions of yeah. times, it still fills you with that feeling of like, oh my god, like, yeah, yeah. And it's the yeah. same here. It's the same here. Like, when uh, when they have the when the cops have that moment of like, obviously, if you've seen this film before or you know anything about it, you know that that's the inevitable reveal. But like, 
the moment where you see the main detective realise, oh god, the call, the calls are coming from inside the house, that means he's been there all night. And you see, and it's, yeah. I think it's solved by their reaction where they're like, you can see that they're all kind of like panicking because they're like, okay, we need to get out of the one girl who we know is alive and then we can do something about yeah. this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, and like before we talk about that finale, mm. like I just I do want to just kind of highlight some more of the, the humour of the movie because I do think it's a genuinely very yeah funny I agree movie. yeah. Um, like you mentioned earlier, the scene where uh, Claire's dad is in the house and uh, he's in the room and there's like it's <laughs> that great shot where it pans across a poster of an old lady sitting in a rocking chair who flips the camera off, like the camera just pans along to that, which is great. And there's the poster on the wall, like you say, of like an ass where it's um two naked people shagging but in a peace symbol. Mm. And she has to keep her hand over the arse. Yes. Uh, and, like, really sheepishly, like, open the door and be like... Because, yeah, he agrees to give her a lift and she's there, like, with the door closed, like, this is so very nice. Oh, no, that happens afterwards, sorry. Uh, but, yeah, she's, like, just really sheepishly, like, crawling past him. And, yeah, no, it's, it's the bit where she's looking for the cat and she's like, where are you, little prick? And he comes up the stairs and she's like, this is so very kind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's so fucking funny. Yeah. Um, there's also the great bit where they're at the police station just before they find out where the calls are coming from where one of the police officers comes in with a load of buckshot in his ass because during the search party he trespassed on a farmer's land and the farmer's there like like you're goddamn right that I did it, I'll do it again goddamn, if he comes on my property again I'll shove that gun <laughs> up his ass sideways Like it's just like such Canadian humour <laughs> interspersed in this very grim horror movie and yeah, that's one of my main reasons for loving it. I just think it's it's just got such a tone of its own, and it, it in a lesser movie it wouldn't work. It wouldn't yeah, they, work they, at they, all. But they in this definitely see so movies where they, they overdo the comedic elements. Hmm. Yeah, it feels very natural in this. But again, it's that kind of it's very Canadian yeah. humor, I think, and and I think Bob Clark does brilliantly because, like I said, there's a parallel with Porky's, which obviously, you know, Porky's is a whole discussion on itself. Another feminist you know, classic. Like, <laughs> but yeah the scene where you mentioned where the, the cops are like giggling in the background like that seems to be like a Bob Clark thing because there's the scene mm. in Porky's where they're trying to Miss Balbrecker is trying to explain to the principal about how the, the kid put his dick through the shower hole but you've then got the three gym teachers sitting in the background of the shot just trying to contain their <laughs> yeah. laughter throughout the whole exchange and it's, and it's brilliant like it's but, brilliant uh, in I that think movie that's something I think that's something that yeah as a directing tip is like or just as a kind of observation something that always takes me out of movies is when there are objectively funny situations that the characters don't laugh at um yeah i agree where it's, it's played to the audience not this the is something that the yeah. um not a show i particularly enjoy but something i will commend them on the, the sitcom how i met your mother is that one of the creative decisions was that the characters would laugh at each other's jokes because normally in sitcoms, yeah. characters say jokes and say funny lines, and the other characters act like it's just a normal, that like, there's no response to them, because they're just waiting for the laughter to die down from the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree, that's a good choice. It reminds me of, this is a slightly different reference point, but there's a, a scene in the, the American Shameless, which I'm on record as being a big fan of, where uh, they're about to get evicted from their house by one of their relatives who's falsified a will. And uh, the little girl, Debbie, is only supposed to be like 12 or 13, goes up to the police officers trying to evict them and goes, oh, but uncle said that if I didn't tell, he'd let us keep the house. And you see the police officers react. And then her, her big sister, knowing it's bullshit, like looks at her and has to stifle this laughter whilst pretending to be horrified by what's going on. And that's one of the funniest scenes in that whole show. And that should not be funny, but it's 
played so beautifully. Um, yeah, I think Bob Clark's direction in this movie lends it a, a quality of its own, but we won't dwell too much because I can yeah, talk about it. Yeah, let's do the, the final scene and uh, then uh, do Kino or Inferno. Yeah, and then fi- yeah, we'll do that. Final thoughts, and then go from there. So yeah, the final scene, as we've alluded to, everybody in the house is dead apart from Jess, and she's had to keep the killer on the line long enough to trace the call, which they do. And again, I like how the calls. I like how you got the intercutting of her on the phone, the guy running around the phone company and tracing it and stuff. Like, there's a real sort of tension to that scene. It's, it's very very good. Um, and then yeah, she gets the call where she's like, you know, you need to get out of the house. Like, and she's like, I'll go upstairs, and he just goes, No, Miss Bradford. You have to get out of the house, and he, you know he says the the calls are coming from inside the house, and I think Olivia Hussey is brilliant in this scene. It's that she has that real deer in the headlights, terrified look, where she knows her friends are dead, and I think like her most powerful bit of acting in this movie is just that bit where she's at the bottom of the stairs, and at first she's like you know Phil Bob like like answer me and then she just starts hysterically screaming their names and like it's so visceral i think like her performance is so good here but against her better judgment jess grabs the fire poker and goes upstairs which <laughs> again in most other movies you're like do not do that but you, you know yeah i think it makes sense it. in this she's, movie because she do doesn't it's that thing of like they're probably dead but they might not be so you kind of have to yeah, I think because actually I think that's one thing I do like about this whole ending sequence. So obviously she goes upstairs, she encounters the killers, bit of a run around, um, but then mm. uh, you know she and obviously she sees the corpses of Phil and Barb, so she knows they're dead, and then she books it. Um, she ends up in is it like the basement? Yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's the the most iconic shot from this movie, which we have to mention, is where yeah she busts the bedroom door down, sees Phil and Bob's corpses on the bed, and then she hears the killer doing his whispering. Because all throughout the movie, the killer is whispering down the phone, talking about Billy and Agnes, and he's doing different voices, and you kind of piece together this idea of this guy's very disturbing backstory. But yeah, she's she's on the floor, she hears you know. Uh, Agnes, don't tell her what we did. And she just looks up and there's this incredibly chilling shot of the killer's eye staring at her through the crack in the door, which is iconic. It's so iconic. Um, And to the point where every time I've shown this movie to people, that's the bit that gets like an audible reaction out of the room is when you just see that eye staring at her and it's brilliant. Yeah, he chases her downstairs. um, She barricades herself in the bedroom and then, like I say, her boyfriend, who's been, you know, the red herring the whole way through the movie, he shows up. And I know you had particular praise. Yeah, for this, so he so kind of shows up and you see it. him uh, from the outside uh, looking in. And he's trying to be like, you know, he's trying to call out to her and be like, hey, come on, like, what are you doing? And I think the thing that was effective about this scene is you see the kind, you, you can really see Olivia Hussey uh, as Jess kind of doing the mental maths of like, Wait, but the killer was upstairs a minute ago, but now he's out there, and, and like it's a really like it's really lingered on as well. That kind of sense of unease, where she you can see her kind of weighing up, like because obviously the police have put the idea in her head that he might be the killer. And it's also and worth she, noting, yeah, earlier as they've done that earlier in the movie, they asked, was there ever a point where you got a phone call and he was there and he there's he a bit where, yeah. but obviously at that point she didn't know the calls were coming from inside the house. Yes. So everything clicks at that point yeah yeah so it's kind of 
it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting sequence because he kind of comes in through the window because he sees that she's kind of like got the poker and she's clearly like on the verge of hysteria. And obviously, it doesn't end well for the boyfriend. He gets poker to the face and ends <laughs> which up which is off screen, but <laughs> yeah. And again, I think the fact it's off screen is quite effective as well because it just makes the ten- the tension linger for that little bit longer where you're like, is she gonna go for him? Because like when I was watching, I couldn't I couldn't remember this movie really the ending anyway, yeah. and I was like is she going to smash his brains in? Or is it going to be like, the killer's going to come down behind him and get him? Or like, what's going to, you know, what's going to happen? And, um, yeah, I just think it's very well done. Because, again, you don't feel that she's being stupid in the position she's in. In fact, the close-ups kind of linger on her for long enough that you're like, oh, she's whirring through this in her mind. Yeah. But she's in, like, a state of panic. Mm -hmm. So... She's she's having that like fight or flight thing where she's like, "Am I just gonna fucking brain this cunt? Is he the killer?" Like she's kind of like, you know, figuring it out as it's happening to her. Yeah. And obviously, she makes the decision to brain the cunt. And that's another great shot when the cops finally do come in. Yeah. Love and you just shot. have her cradling his dead body, basically. Yeah. Um. Yeah, which then leads to the end of the movie where she's passed out. She's um, uh, sedated, actually. Oh, sedated, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's sedated. Uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Cause they say, I like, oh, will interview her, and then they say, oh, you're not going to be able to get anything out of her until tomorrow afternoon, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, and the police seem happy enough that the boyfriend was the killer because, well, she did she did him in with the poker, so he must have been going for her. And they all kind of leave, and this is great as well, they, they leave, aside from, like, one guard who's posted outside, and then you see Billy, he's there, he's watching her, her unconscious body. And, and then, then just pulls we, out, and we end on the shot of the house, and then the phone starts ringing because in that scene they say the whole every time he killed somebody, the phone yeah, he, rings. phone rings, and yeah, so it ends. And what one thing that I do really like as well is the very first shot of this movie is the exterior of the house, and it goes into the house and tells the story, and then at the end it pulls out from the house again. I think that's it's a very simple little thing that obviously a lot of movies have done, but like it's done very really well here. And yeah, it's a very bleak ending. There's a lot of people out there that seem to be like, no, no, I think she survives. Like, no, no, she was sedated, laying in bed, completely defenseless. Billy comes down from the attic. Yeah, I don't know that there's any reason to assume she survives. No, I, I mean, she's definitely dead, you know. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, we said this about the end of Inception, it's not that they forgot to shoot a murder scene. It's that, you know, you are, you are supposed to percolate on it. I guess like you could you could maybe think like okay maybe Billy doesn't kill her because like you know he kind of moves in silence he doesn't necessarily like if the cops are there he might not feel safe to act but I think clearly the implication is supposed to be that she gets got yeah like he gets her at the end mm. and and I think like again it's it's a real testament to the writing because like when you look at that scene in a very simple terms it's the survivor of these murders is left in her bed sedated with nobody around her. Uh, they haven't checked the attic where two of the bodies are, but like in background, because like it's just like a, a wide shot of the bed with the characters, and you see the reasonings one by one as to why everybody has to leave. And yeah. uh, you hear a cop say, "Should we search the basement and the attic?" And um, Fuller just goes, "No, no, wait till the lab guys get here. They'll be here in an hour." So like yeah. they don't check the attic where they would have found Billy. Like everything in this movie is accounted for. And again, that's what I love. Like, there's no real loose ends in this movie. Everything yeah, and, and is of course, the cops have so assumed perfect. that Jess's boyfriend was the killer, so there's no need to continue searching until yeah, forensics get there, right? Because it's just exactly. Like, 
Exactly. Why would you? And it's it, again, yeah. it's it's one of those movies where like I think what makes it work for me is like they there aren't those plot holes that you get in a lot of slasher movies where you're just like, well, why don't they just do this? Why don't they just call the cops? Why don't they just do, you know? It all happens, and the reason these things are delayed or like put off is like part of the story. Yeah, exactly. And again, like you know, so if we go sort of move into final thoughts, like yeah, I've said many times, like this is my favorite horror movie, and I think it's because the writing in it is so strong, the atmosphere is so thick, everything is accounted for. There's no stupid decisions. It's genuinely very funny. It's genuinely very suspenseful and very scary in places. I think. Billy, even though we don't even know if his name is Billy, like we just sort of glean that from. Yeah, I'm calling him Billy because the other movie does. Yeah, they do. Yeah, because like it's it's worth pointing out as well. Like obviously, if you listen to the previous Black Christmas episodes, uh, the killer is seemingly known as Billy, and it's very heavily implied that he murdered his younger sister Agnes. It's also some other very unsavory stuff is implied as well uh, through lines of dialogue. Yeah, it's implied in this movie, movie, but if you watch the 2006 version, yeah, it's it's it's. Yeah, it goes from being yeah implied to canon, you know. Um, he's born. But yeah, no, he's I, yellow, I love this movie. Sense. Yeah, I I love this movie. I really really do. And uh, it's not really even a hot take because I think within like the horror community, it's not really considered that much of a hot take. But like, even though Halloween is kind of like the de facto slasher movie and like what we kind of base the entire genre on, I'm of the opinion that I think Black Christmas is actually a superior film. I think the writing is a lot better. I think the the sort of palpable sense of dread is more my kind of speak. As much as I love Halloween and love Michael Myers and love the way that character's portrayed and how that character moves and stalks and yada, 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 yada. Billy is just more of like a, a completely mysterious unknown threat that just slowly envelops everything within the house. And I think he's just far more terrifying. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. Absolute Kino, 100%. We'll watch it every Christmas because I love it so much. Yeah, I think I'm also going to have to go Kino. Um I don't know if I'm as uh, in love with this as you are, but again, it's very good. I'll probably watch it again. Um, you know, I think in general you're more of a slasher guy than I am, generally speaking. Yeah, I think that. Yeah. But I think yeah, this absolutely. movie, it kind of works on a level that, like, I, I wouldn't, I would hesitate to even really call this a slasher movie. I know it's kind of the example that people always pull out and say, like, oh, this is like the proto slasher movie, right? Because um, even Halloween is derived from this to some extent. Um, yeah. But yeah, it doesn't really feel like a slasher movie in that sense, I would say. Um, you know, it's more of a kind of suspense drama. Because again, the kills aren't really lingered on. Um, no. Which is something that I found kind of refreshing, actually, because there's. As, as much as, you know, sometimes the bloody and gory uh, slasher movies are fun to watch, like. Especially after watching all 37 Halloween films this year. <laughs> it was interesting to see a film that had... It's kind of the same premise, which is just like a bunch of people getting killed off by a crazy killer on a specific holiday. But was very much... Um, you know, it was more about the characters. And as you say, it was more about that kind of like lingering sense of... Uh, kind of dread. But also that thing of like confusion. Cause like people don't really know what's going on. Like... They're trying to piece together yeah. what's happening. Whereas the thing with the Michael Myers movies, you never really have that mystery element. It's always just kind of like, yeah, it's Michael Myers. Yeah, he's, you know, he's doing yeah. what he's doing. He's Yeah, whereas in this movie, we have no idea yeah. who this character is, apart from the things that he says over the phone that allude to a backstory. But even then, like listening to the way that he impersonates multiple voices and, and even that bit at the beginning where he drops the voice to just go, I'm going to kill you. Like, 
what what does where does that even come from like is is that just his general demeanor and he just does this to fuck with people yeah like he could just be he might not even have the backstory that they depict in the 2006 movie he might yeah just be it's, like, it's just it's just all a bit just crazy because billy himself is doing business you know yeah. and i think he's kind of representative in this movie of just like general violence against women i would say um because mm. it should be noted all his victims are female um yeah, and I think it's that. Well, no, he has one male victim. Actually. He does. Uh, yeah, there's the police officer that's stationed outside of the uh, outside the house. Like you, um, you don't see him get killed, but um, when they figure out where the calls are coming from, they go on the radio to him, and the camera pans up, and he's in the car with a, uh, a slash right. throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even then, like that's such a minor thing, and you know, we never see Billy do that. Mm. Hell, the fucking boyfriend could have done that for all we know, but obviously yeah, probably didn't. <laughs> but I think yeah, the point is he yeah, kind of but, becomes more representative of like an idea of kind of violence and sexual violence, um, and it becomes yeah, it's more elevated than just like oh, it's Michael Myers, he killed his sister and he's back, you know, or even like Jason Voorhees or any of that kind of shit. Like it's not that. It's kind of it's a more palpable thing of like. Uh, you know the kind of general threat that women face in this world, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's just this unseen, unknown, yeah, just embodiment of yeah violence. Uh, and I think yeah, I think he's genuinely a terrifying villain because, and it's, it's again, it's the the confusion and the not even ignorance to the fact that he's there. Like they just don't know he's there. They don't know this man is in their house. They are completely oblivious to the fact that he's mm. there. And it's it's fantastic. Really made it me really think as like, well. The yeah. whole 2019 Black Christmas trying to do a thing about like, um, you know, misogyny and like rape culture and stuff. They really could have done so much more with the idea of the calls are coming from inside the house, which they don't even do in that movie. Like, they could have they could have done no. it as kind of. I mean, people use it as a Twitter clapback all the time when they're talking about like in- internalized misogyny and things like that. They'll say like, oh, the calls are coming from yeah. inside the house, right? Which, as, yeah. as a joke, and it's like, yeah, they really could have done something with that, but they just didn't. Anyway, I don't, I'm not here to bash the 2019 movie too much. We've we've done that. Listen to Crimbo Inferno one. Yeah, and also like no one likes that <laughs> fucking movie, so you know. No. Um, just basically the the takeaway here is don't watch the 2019 one. Maybe stick the 06 one on if you want some grot. I would say skip both and watch this. This is the only one. This is the only one just that's watch worth this. watching. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Bonnie, be a good dog. Dad, it's, it's really neat. Where did you get this? Oh, some little junk store in Chinatown. Can I pick him up, Dad? Sure, go ahead. Just be careful. You gotta be gentle. I will. I hope he's housebroken. Mm. Oh, isn't he cute? Has it got a name, Dad? Yeah, Magwai. What? Magwai. I don't know, some Chinese word. I just call him Gizmo. He seems to like it. So Gromlons, otherwise known as Gremlins, it's a 1984 American black comedy slash horror film directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, not that one, and of course... Produced by Steven Spielberg. Now, 
we are going to get into the plot of this movie, but I'm going to assume that fucking everyone's seen Gremlins at this point, right? Oh, they must have. Like, it's a Christmas classic. Like, Black Christmas you could be forgiven for not maybe seeing, but Gremlins, sort your shit out. And I feel like there's not actually heaps of plot in this movie when you finally get into it. <laughs> no, on a very simplistic level, no. But, okay, we can, we, can go, we can go through the plot, but I feel like this one, people have seen, we can be a little bit more all over the place with this one. Um, so, yeah. the st- at the start of the movie, a struggling inventor... Uh, by the name of Mr. Peltzer, visits, I guess, what's supposed to be Chinatown. Or maybe yeah, it's it just Chinatown. China. Not made abundantly clear in the it's movie. It's Chinatown, he does mention yeah. that. Um, and this is the part of the movie which has aged probably the, the least well. Um, I would agree. <laughs> he goes into a store, which is very... Um, I th- there's so many gong sounds in this scene... Which um, it's not really on, but that's fine. Um, he goes into uh, yeah, he goes into a shop owned by a Mister Win, who's a wizened old Chinaman. Probably can't say Chinaman. Let's try that again. He's a wizened old Chinese gentleman. Um, and just to make matters even more stereotypical, uh, his assistant, his grandson, is basically short round from uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yeah, like Spielberg recycled a character on that one. Yeah, and it's very much like, okay, I'm not sure that's okay anymore. Yeah, like the and like the you know, the store they're in is like a, an antique store with like you know shriveled body parts and tarantulas and yeah, it's a Chinese wizard. All manner of yeah, like all manner of like incense burning everywhere and stuff. Like it's uh, it's a lot. There's <laughs> a lot going way. on. But anyway, he's in there to buy yeah. a gift for his son. Uh, well, Mr. Peltzer is in there to buy a gift for his son, Billy. Um, for some reason, Weird yeah, going to, to for your son. Uh, a mystical Chinese black magic shop. I don't really know why that's the thing. <laughs> um, but anyway, he stumbles across uh, a creature, a mogwai, in fact, um, who's like a little fluffy... <laughs> it's Gizmo, come on. Why are we even pretending people don't know yeah. what that is? It's Gizmo, the mogwai. Um but Mr. Wynn tells him it's not for sale uh, because there are lots of you know, it's, it's really difficult to take care of the Mogwai uh, Mr. Wynn's grandson on the other hand uh, being a cheeky chappy, sneaks Gizmo out in his little box and uh, gives him over to Mr. Peltzer but he tells him three crucial rules Mark which are that you can't let it in sunlight because sunlight mm-hmm. will kill it you can't let it get wet and you can't feed it after midnight and the third of those rules is the one that puzzles me the most we'll get into it we will <laughs> um, but yes uh, so yeah Mr. Peltzer takes uh, the Mogwai home at this point we are introduced to Billy Peltzer and the town of Kingston Falls uh, which is you know your classic small town American uh, place Um it's very much out of like a, a 1950s Christmas card. Isn't yeah, it? like it's it's which is definitely town. the point. They're trying, yeah. you know, they're setting it up to be this very yeah. like classic kind of yeah old school Christmas movie. Um, although interestingly, one of the first things we're introduced to, uh, Billy works at the bank and uh, takes his dog into work as one does. Um, we are introduced to the local um, bitch. Uh, <laughs> It's the only way you can really describe the local bitch, whose uh, name is Mrs. Deagle, who basically is the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, I believe yeah. there's even a bit where she's like, "I'll get your little dog too." 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a full on like allusion to but not only that, yeah, she yeah. she's just in there like she wants to murder Billy's dog. That's her main motivation. Wants to just oh, yeah. shank it, kill it. Because, because what did his dog his dog did something to her lawn or something. Like I believe it fouled her lawn. Fouled her lawn, but, I think um, that's what she says. Yeah, yeah. no one uh, wants to stand up to Mrs. Deagle because she's rich. And she's like, I'm going to kill that fucking dog. It's the first opportunity I get. Says this in a crowd of people. It's just full on like, I'm going to murder your dog, Billy. You kill it dead. Um, <laughs> yes, and uh, we see that Billy is uh, not particularly interested in working in the bank. He wants to be a cartoonist. For which the boss's son, uh, a typical 80s guy, mocks him. Um, but we also see... We also trash, are introduced to Phoebe Cates, who plays a character whose name is. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Kate. Kate. Her name is uh, Kate. Which I think is. Yeah. Um, Kino uh, alumni at this point, Phoebe Cates, because uh, she also appeared in uh, Drop Dead Fred. Yes, and the dreadful probably, film yeah. Drop Dead um, Fred. Um. Uh, it's not dreadful, but this you know, poor wank we'll, stain of a film is Drop Dead Fred. No, no, it's no, a bad no, movie. Great movie. Great movie. It's a, it's Kick a it into movie. the flames. Cool classic. <laughs> anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah, Phoebe Cates, who plays Kate, who works with uh, Billy at the bank, but also works as a, as a bartender. She's working all over town. Well. This girl. I don't mean that she's a prostitute. Yeah. I mean that she just works several no, jobs. She's, She's a headstrong young woman who's struggling in the face of poverty and she mm, deserves that mm, respect. Mm. Yeah. She's a working girl, if yeah. you know what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> Stop implying. <laughs> well, clearly the uh, Billy's boss's son thinks that she's uh, up for a bit of the old rumpy-pumpy because he's in the bar like, that, why don't you come back to true. my house, sweetheart, after, you, after your shift? She doesn't want to know about it. But he uh, tries to rope her in by being like, I've got cable. Which... Um, which I mean, he definitely dates this. Definitely dates this bad movie. Work on me. <laughs> that he would even consider that a pickup line. Um, but no, Kate's got no interest. She's only got eyes for Billy, it seems. Um, which is, you know, a thing. But we do find out that Kate doesn't like Christmas, but we don't find out why at this point. Um, no, and she makes a very bold claim when talking about why she doesn't like Christmas with a line that always catches me off guard where she's like oh you know a lot of people tend to be depressed around Christmas when most people are opening up their presents other people are opening up their wrists which is a fucking yeah, this line is something actually before we progress <laughs> this, this is something that I kind of want to flag up is that Chris Columbus not that one uh, his script um, was much much darker than what got made uh, into the movie and the movie you know like I say it's the black comedy mm. in some respects but there was like the gremlins were much more murderous in the original script like Billy's mum would have gotten mm. decapitated um, yeah there was like full on wow, townspeople deaths in this movie the only one that retains uh, is uh, what's her name Mrs. what's she called Mrs. Deagle yeah Mrs. Deagle who is the best yeah. death in the movie and she's the only human <laughs> who gets killed on screen but in the original in the original script there was going to be a lot more like it was more of a bloody horror film which I think is interesting. Um, where were we? Yes, so uh, Billy goes home after chirps in Kate. 
uh, to find that his dad has returned. We should say his dad, uh, Mr. Peltzer, is a uh, an inventor. And this is one of the films that watching it as a child gave me the yeah. impression that being an inventor was a job you could have. Um, it's not really the case. <laughs> because... No, because given like the size of the Peltzer house and all the sort of things that they have and all the spare money this man has to peddle his yeah, shit invention, definitely confuses me about this film. Successful. It's like they're supposed to be so hard up for money because the the banker uh, tells Billy like, "Oh, you're you're supporting your family basically," so they're supposed to be hard up. What you know, they're all supporting their dad while dad goes off selling weird inventions that no one needs. Um, but yeah, they live in a massive house, so. Go figure, I guess. And they they utilize the the father's shit inventions. I guess just out of pity, out of sad pity. It's a desperately sad living situation. (laughs) This mentally ill man who thinks he's because some of his some of his inventions you can sort of see the logic, like the weird little device that breaks eggs with the little chicken head and stuff like that. Has a a sense of logic. There's the all-purpose travel kit as well. There's just a block of. Bathroom buddy, the bathroom yeah, buddy, yeah. The smokeless bathroom buddy, the smokeless ashtray, <laughs> which is one of my favourite gags in the movie, where it's supposed to be a smokeless ashtray, and the dude's just mm. holding it out of the door because smoke is just billowing out. <laughs> anyway, yes, they, Mr. Peltzer has returned home from his uh, long time selling bizarre inventions to Chinese people, I guess, and um, he's back and he's brought the Mogwai with him. And everyone's like, oh, look at this cute little mogwai. Um, they, they decide he's called Gizmo um, for reasons unknown. Apparently mogwai is too hard for Mr. Peltzer to pronounce. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes, he and Billy immediately hit it off. Interestingly, the way Mr. Peltzer chooses to give this gift is that Gizmo is gift-wrapped in his box, which I feel like is a bad call. Um, if you're giving an animal as a gift, don't, yeah. don't gift-wrap it. <laughs> Just um, yeah, just, like that's, just, that's just cruel, cruel than usual. Um, and he tells Billy the yeah. rules: uh, <laughs> no, no sunlight, no feeding after midnight, no getting wet. About girlfriends like that. Um, Fucking hell! Fucking hell! What that means. Um, <laughs> I don't want to know what that. Uh, I've had a few uh, nocturnal girlfriends who. Well, let's leave it there. Um, <laughs> they worked at the mall. Um, where were we? <laughs> where were we? Actually, uh, Billy receives uh, Gizmo as a gift, and like we immediately see that him and Billy have bonded, and Gizmo is the most adorable little creature. In all of cinema, I fucking love Gizmo. I think he's great. Uh, amazing animatronics. Um, yeah. So then, uh, Billy has a, a younger friend. Yeah, he's a real. Pre- he's a precursor to like. Oh Baby yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, like Baby Yoda's overall design is just Gizmo, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's, it's just green Gizmo. Yeah, um, and I would argue with less of the charm. Um, but that's this is not the Star Wars podcast, and it never will. But with be, more confirmed kills. Is... Hmm. Baby Yoda has more confirmed kills than Gizmo. Okay, fair enough. That bumps them up in- Interestingly, points. that's not a nil-nil situation. They both have <laughs> confirmed kills by the end of Gremlins 2. 
the uh, best yeah. bit in Gremlins. It's the best gag in Gremlins too for me is the first blood parrot at the end where they're just like, oh yeah, they just pushed him too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean that would have been a great Gremlins three premise, isn't it? That Gizmo is intentionally getting himself wet to create Gremlins that he then just hunts for sport. Like that's the Gremlins three that I want. Mark, I've had girlfriends like that. <laughs> Uh, you've never had a girlfriend. Um, no, I've only had woman friends. Because uh, okay, I'm a okay. feminist. Well. <laughs> we anyway, won't, back, won't linger on that for much longer. <laughs> back to Gromlons. Um, so yeah, long and short of it. Uh, Gizmo and Billy, they bond, they're hanging out, they're having a great time. Um, Billy's friend, Corey Feldman, comes around. Um... Which is weird. Dressed as dressed as a Christmas tree. Yeah, Corey Feldman's inclusion in the film baffles me forever. Because why is he hanging out with this um, adult man? Um, yeah, and he's dressed as a Christmas tree. Yeah, he's um, dressed as a Christmas tree, and he's also not really in the movie for any particular reason because he kind of drops out of it midway through. Yeah, he's not, like he's literally his sole purpose of the movie is to knock the water onto Gizmo. Yes. The creates more mugwais and there's a scene that i find baffling where he does that and then like five more mugwais are created and billy's like wow this is like so amazing and Corey feldman just goes and lays on billy's bed and opens a comic book because oh it's really not that impressive it just i, I don't understand yeah, what's going on really there. weird i don't know why he's it's in this so movie weird. i feel like they could have achieved the same thing with billy just accidentally getting gizmo wet yeah because other than that Corey Feldman doesn't do anything else for the rest of the movie. Like, there's a bit during the Gremlin rampage at the end where you see him fighting off Gremlins, but yeah, that's it. Like, that doesn't even need to be in the movie. Very weird. Um, yeah. So yeah, the Mogwai multiply, uh, but the new Mogwai are nasty little bastards, getting up to mischief, getting up to trouble. But uh, Mister, uh, I nearly said Mister Feldman, Mister Peltzer, he's like, we can sell these Mogwai. Because uh, he's, uh, you know, he's American. So he's like, we can sell and these Mogwai. And uh, we can make some serious money off these babies. Although I don't think he's thought his business model through because a creature that multiplies when it gets wet is probably not the most bankable thing because all you'd need to have to have 100 is one. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, you and can't some... copyright a Mogwai. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he's thought this one through. Because no. if, I, if I had a Mogwai, okay, i pay him for one Mogwai, all I have to do is turn the hose on it and suddenly I've got loads. Yeah. They just flood the market with Mogwai. By the way, a fun fact about Mogwai. Um, there is some basis in Chinese mythology for the Mogwai. Because um, Mogwai in uh, Cantonese, I believe, kind of just means devil or demon or monster. Um, but it's a specific kind of monster that was said to only breed during the rainy seasons. Um, in Chinese mythology, they apparently just fuck like rabbits when it's raining. But um, oh. <laughs> clearly that was the basis for the Mogwai's breeding pattern in this film, where it's not that they are shagging in the rain, but it's just, you know, water in general makes them pop off of Grismo's back, which is always a slightly unsettling scene, actually. Yeah, like, Gizmo's, like, cries of pain in this scene are uh, genuinely quite upset. <laughs> that is one of the things about this um, movie, it's, like, weirdly sadistic towards Gizmo. 
Yeah, for a character that's as cute as he is, I I genuinely find scenes of him being like tortured really unpleasant to watch because I I don't like seeing like actual animals being harmed in any way. So seeing like a fictional creature that's just as adorable and I would keep as a pet being harmed is really quite upsetting. Um, yeah, it's it's that's definitely some of the darker stuff in the movie. I think is the way that Gizmo is just like mistreated by the other Mogwais. Um and their leader, Stripe, who I, I love Stripe. Stripe, Stripe yeah, he's the main guy. He's the leader of the gang. So anyway, yeah, he, yeah. the long and short of it is the, ground, the, the, the Mogwai are little bastards. They're up to no good. They're trying to play tricks on the family. Like They, they turn the clock around and, um, to make it so it's midnight, so that Billy feeds them after midnight. Um, at one point, uh, Billy takes the... Uh, actually, it's not the old woman who's the only on-screen human death, because I forgot about the science teacher. Who, ah yes, uh, yes, yes. who uh, Billy takes the Mogwai to to run some tests on, and uh, yeah. Anyway, the evil Mogwai then turn into these flesh cocoons after being fed after midnight, um, which is <laughs> very weird. Because um, <laughs> when's the cut off? Yeah, who knows? Like... Um, I mean, this is something they make fun of in the second movie, right? Yeah. They they do. I feel like the idea was supposed to be you don't feed them after sundown, but obviously, how do you then write in that the Mogwais trick Billy into yeah, feeding uh, them after I think sundown. it's just a bit of, like, magical lore. Like, I don't think it's... Pretty... Guffin. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, as I'm sure you all know, at this point, the uh, flesh sacks open and some nasty little gremlins get out. Um we also know about gremlins because there's like an old World War Two guy who lives in the village who's like, back in WW2, whenever there was a fault in the machines, you'd say it was gremlins, which is where the term gremlins comes from, is from World War II. Um, and the Roald Dahl uh, story is yes. based on that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, it was originally, yeah. it was folklore before it was a Roald Dahl story. Because it was just kind of like, yeah, it's basically just saying like there was like a bug in the machine or whatever. You just say, like, that's oh, gremlins. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the Roald Dahl story is kind of like the sort of the popularization yeah. of the idea of the gremlin as a monster sort of thing, isn't it? And yeah. there's also the um, fairly uh, good until the last 20 minutes Chloe Moretz film, uh, Shadow in the Cloud. Then have you seen that? I haven't seen it. Which that. is set in World War II. No. There's a gremlin on the plane. Um, and it's actually pretty good for most no, of the movie, and then it ends really poorly. But that's, this is not the Shadow in the Cloud uh, story. This is the Gromlon story. Um, Gromlons, by the way, are close relatives of Gerblins. <laughs> um, right, we're just not going to go on that. <laughs> the Gerblins, they're coming. Um, what the hell are we talking about? Uh, yes, Anyway, look, the long and short of it is we won't go through all the, the, the beats of it because people have seen Gremlins, but the Gremlins get out, they run rampant, they beat up Gizmo, um, and the humans eventually overpower them. That's about they it. They do. They're by trapping them in a cinema where they watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which they, they love. love, and then they blow the cinema. Because this is the thing, like we're, we're kind of glossing over the ins and outs of the different scenes, because, yeah, they kill the old lady, they kill the science teacher... They kill the old lady by shooting her off a stairlift, which is hilarious. Um, it's so there's good. obviously the it's iconic so scene where Billy's mum murderizes several Gromlons. Is that that's amazing? Like we talked about this a little bit off mic. How like even though like yeah, the intention of this movie was originally supposed to be a lot darker, it still retains some of that. Like the scene in which the the Gromlons first get loose. 
uh, Billy's mum has to like fend them off in the house is shot like a yeah. horror movie. And she's but like sticking them into blenders the and like, throwing them into microwaves and stuff. For me, the bit that I love the most is uh, where she goes upstairs and sees that the cocoons have hatched, and then she's sort of sitting on the staircase because Billy is is in like the attic room of the house, and then uh, you just hear, "Do you hear what I hear?" play from yeah. downstairs, which is like that's great. Um, and obviously, like Joe Dante who directed this, uh, he did mm. the Howling uh, prior, which is yeah, a yeah. great movie, and uh, that's kind of got a similar kind of wackiness in places to gremlins i think it's got a very similar energy i think um and yeah that scene's great because yeah like yeah, she shoves a gremlin in a blender shoves one in a microwave uh, she stabs one yeah. to death uh, <laughs> which i didn't realize until i watched it this time but like yeah she the one that she stabs um is not in fact dead at the point of stabbing because when she shoves the other one in the microwave, if you look in the background, that gremlin is just visibly writhing around on the kitchen counter. The dying. one gets thrown into the fireplace <laughs> as well. Yeah, Billy beheads it and its head goes. Yeah, in that's the fireplace. right. Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, <laughs> although interestingly, uh, in both across both movies, um, Billy's mum has the highest gremlin kill count. <laughs> Does she really? Yeah. I thought Billy had the highest kill count. No, 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 it's Billy's mum, because in both movies she murderises, like, several in one scene. Uh, okay, I thought it was Billy, because in the sequel he gets the electric gremlin and unleashes it upon it's the still gremlin. still Billy's mum, apparently. I read this as a gremlin's fact. Okay. A gremlin's fact. Well, I suppose in that sense, Billy's not the one that kills the other gremlins, it's the electric gremlin that does. Billy's mum has the most confirmed kills of gremlins. Fair um, enough. So yeah, basically the rest of the movie is just gremlins carnage until um, Gizmo and Billy band together and kill the gremlins. Uh, there is also the scene that makes Mark cry, which is the uh, the farewell to the Mogwai when um, when all the gremlins are killed. Uh, Mister Wynn shows up at the Peltzers' house and he's like he scolds them for their reckless behaviour and the, and Western society's disrespect for nature in general. And uh, yes, he insists that. Uh, uh, the Mogwai comes back with him and um, yeah Mark has a little cry almost like at the end of Bicentennial Man <laughs> I don't cry at either of those movies but they hit me in the feels okay it does they hit me in the feels. Stuff. it depends how much red wine he's up yeah honest, no like there's just something about the, the final bit yeah where like Mr. Wing's about to leave and he's like oh he, he wants to say something to you and it's just I don't know the way that like Gizmo just pops out and just says goodbye to Billy I'm just there like oh my heart <laughs> like it's just it's so sweet and lovely and I don't know what it is it just ruins me every oh, we did, fucking we did gloss over my favourite scene in the movie which is the reveal of why Phoebe Cates hates Christmas which is that her dad dressed up for Santa Claus to surprise them went down the chimney got stuck and died <laughs> like it's so like like she plays that scene so great as well yeah like, but it's just like you got all this like goofy gremlin mayhem and she's just like yeah we we noticed the smell from the chimney and we called the fire brigade thinking they're gonna pull out a cat and they pulled out my dad i'm like what the fuck is going on in this movie <laughs> like yeah oh, and obviously man, that's like, that's a speech that they parody in the second they movie. do but the um, implications of what the speech is going to be in the second one sound way worse. <laughs> like, yeah, like there's um, some weird implicit stuff in that. that I don't. Yeah, because it's like it's about President's Day, right? I can't remember what the gag is. But. Yeah, she encounters a man with a big beard, and that, but they cut her off before she goes any further. And I'm like, what the hell was that story about? <laughs> 
Um, I mean, it's kind of that whole scene is indicative of like this movie's weird tone, where like it is a joke. The whole monologue about Katie's about Kate's dad getting stuck in the thing and the chimney and starving to death. Like it is a joke. It's a very dark joke, but um, it's the kind of this is kind of the thing that I always find interesting about this film like Gremlins 2 as we've kind of alluded to is much more of a cartoonish like parody of the first one and kind of it's much more just about gremlin mayhem in general kind of more of a kids movie whereas like this movie is definitely shown to kids I remember watching this when <laughs> but, I was very young but definitely not appropriate for kids that's the thing like, well arguably arguably I mean it's a PG-13 film one of the first PG-13 films in fact, Spielberg has previous on this because uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and this movie were the reason that the PG-13 rating even existed because it was considered too hard, both were considered too hard for a PG but kind of too soft to be R-rated um, mm. partially because the studio in both cases was like, well, we want families to be able to see both, you know, because Indiana Jones and yeah. Gremlins and family movies and to some extent. So they kind of invented the PG-13 rating for that reason, so they can go like, okay, it's mostly okay for kids, but maybe don't bring a fucking five-year-old to it, you know? Yeah. Um, in this country, obviously, we have the 12A rating, which yeah. came across, uh, came along a lot later, came along in 2002 with the release of Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi movie, yep. which yep. was initially rated uh, I 12. Believe, I believe for something like four seconds of footage, apparently, which is the isn't it the impalement of the Green Goblin was the thing that they. I think it's to. mostly the, the the final scene in general between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin was considered kind of too intense for a PG rating. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the impalement doesn't help because that's like uh, in BBFC terms, that's like realistic violence. Yeah. As opposed to yeah, fantasy yeah. violence. Um, yeah. It's kind of a similar thing here. Like what the rating. What would have bumped it up to an R rating or a fifteen in this country is the is the kitchen scene with Billy's mum, because most ratings uh, standards uh, authorities anything that uses like household implements for violence yeah. gets you a higher rating because it's imitable behaviour. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I watched this um, with a good friend of mine, and he hadn't seen it for a long, long time, and like he was genuinely quite shocked by the violence that's in that kitchen scene because he just had no recollection of that being the case. Because like it's, it's incredibly gory <laughs> in those moments. Like, yeah, when she turns the blender on that gremlin, like just chunks and shit fly all over the kitchen. Um, yeah, like it's also like uh, stripes stripes death at the end of the film. You know, he gets hit by the sunlight, and he's like his flesh like melts off his bones. Like it's yeah, it's quite very intense. Uh, very, very Raiders of the Lost Ark. That bit yeah, I'm it? sure that's an intentional um, reference. It being a Joe Dante film, full of I references. mean, it has to be. Yeah. But I think like for me, like the best stuff in this movie is I love all the sort of like horror adjacent stuff in this movie. Um, but it's just I just like like yeah, all the characters are kind of just got like bits. They're all just doing bits. So, like, anytime you see uh, Mr. Peltzer trying to flog his shitty inventions, <laughs> all of that stuff's gold. Because none of those inventions are good. Yeah. <laughs> like, you wouldn't buy a single one. Like, even the coffee maker that he's invented just spews out tar by the looks of things. Um, and I love the scene with the smokeless ashtray, which I think is great. And I love the the payoff to the scene with the smokeless ashtray where at the end, uh, when <laughs> uh, Mr. Wing comes to uh, collect Gizmo. He, Mr. Peltzer tries to gift him the smokeless ashtray, and he's like, "Ah, smokeless ashtray." And he's like, "Oh, you know what it is? Like, yeah, it's a man in a gas station on the way here trying to sell me." Yeah. 
just, just a great joke. Um, and I, I like that he still accepts it. I think that's, that's yeah, quite Yeah, I think nice that's kind too. of how they get away with some of these slightly dodgy uh, racial stereotyping with Mr. Wynn. Is like, he's portrayed as being kind of in the right and like basically a decent bloke, really. Like, yes, yeah. it's definitely using like Orientalist tropes, but um, mm. like unabashedly, really. But. Um, yeah, even down to like you know the his facial hair and choice of and attire. And he's like smoking and, out of a little pipe and stuff, and it's like yeah, okay. And he's got like one, one like sort of glazed eye and stuff. Um, yeah, it reminds me of the the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the, the Frogat is also cursed, <laughs> um, yeah. which I'm assuming must be a parody. Yeah, of this. it is. Yeah, like because like, he looks exactly yeah. the same. But um, yeah. But I think they kind of get away with it because at the end, Mr. Wynn kind of gets to be the one who's like, you know, ah, your society has no respect for nature and, like, this is what what happens kind of thing. Which is something that I wanted to discuss. Like, what do you think the themes of Gremlins are? Because I've seen a lot of interesting takes, some of which we won't get into because we're not equipped to talk about it. Um, There's definitely some interesting um, takes on racial stuff which I don't really want to get into just gonna push it to one side no I think uh, no I think I think like the main thing obviously is what Mr. Wing talks about at the end where he talks about how like you know particularly like American well it says western culture but the fact that like the town that Gremlins takes place in is such a stereotypical depiction of like 1950s Americana it's very pointedly talking about uh, America and the ways in which yeah that will just stampede over nature and exploit nature and not fully understand it and not really quite prepared to deal with the fallout of uh, their actions and there's a lot of historical parallels that you could perhaps draw which we're obviously not going to get into um, yeah I think it is Take your favourite I, I feel like <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's that's kind of the main thing because that's really there in the text and I think you could definitely extrapolate a lot more uh, ideas and meanings from it which again do go down paths that we are not the right people. Yeah, to there's definitely kind of like a weird. Um, I mean, we'll kind of touch on it and move on. I think we won't deconstruct this too much. There's kind of a take yeah. that I've seen that I don't really agree with, which is like the gremlins kind of represent like white suburban fear of like minorities moving into the neighborhood um, because supposedly the gremlins' activities are very like stereotypically black. Um, you see them break dancing and kind of this sort of stuff, and like admittedly, I think the person making this point presumably hasn't seen Flashdance, which is what that scene is parodying. Um, yeah, I think that's the point, is it? Like, because Gremlins is ultimately a very yeah. 80s movie, and it's like not only sort of poking fun at like sort of 50s B movies, because that's obviously a big point of reference and for, for this Joe movie Dante as well. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's sort of done in a more sort of parody sense of the sort of stuff that was in the zeitgeist at the time I don't think it's an intentional choice to try and demonise a race no, of and, and to be fair I've read the essay um, that this take comes from and I, whilst it's well written I don't agree with it because it relies on a lot of and look I'm a you know white middle class suburban person like if you want to disagree you know take that as you will I'm not going to say like you can't interpret it that way because um, there's also stuff like they, they like the gremlins are showing like eating fried chicken and stuff so like I kind of see where it comes from but also I think you're ignoring a lot of context from the films where like yeah they're, they're eating white fried chicken because like the Peltzer family fed them white fried chicken in the first place so that's their go to 
thing yeah. to eat. Obviously, yeah. that's something. Also, they're animals that will eat meat off the bone. Yeah, if you if you also saw them eating like watermelon and drinking forties, then maybe I could see where you're coming from with that. But like, yeah, yeah, I I think you know. Let's okay, we've kind of addressed that. Let's move on. Um, Well, I I think the other thing to address as well is like the the gremlins don't only just parody things that are synonymous with say like black culture and stuff like you know you see them parodying all manner of like Americana and you know like movie parodies. Like it's very broad, I think. So I, I don't I can understand where that. Um, reading of the movie comes from, but I don't think yeah, that's the case. I kind of, I'm with you on that. It was like, I sort of see where um, it's coming from, but I think it's ignoring context from the film itself. Um, yeah. Because the thing that I would say is, like, I think to me, watching it this time, I think it's more just kind of parodying um, kind of crass commercialism, really. Like, it's this idea of, like, you take yes. this very, like, pure creature, and then in an attempt to mass produce it, you create inferior coffees that then create actively destructive coffees. Um, and I think the fact that they're all mm. in the cinema watching a Disney film and singing along to it kind of... It's very pointed, yeah, I think knowing it? Joe Dante's work as we do now, I think, like, yeah, there's yeah. definitely kind of jabbing at that. I also think there's an element of... And this is maybe where it dovetails into the idea of the Gremlins representing quote-unquote black culture... I would argue that the Gremlins are kind of representing what was considered to be stereotypical 1980s teen culture. I think that's part mm. of it as well, as like the mod yeah. guys are like cute little babies, and then all of a sudden you've got these horrible little toddlers, and then all of a sudden you've got these even weirder creatures that are going out and drinking and smoking and fucking and all the rest of it, and it's like, yeah, I think, so yeah, I think the idea of like it's about sub- suburban fear of, you know, general carnage is part of it. Uh, yeah, basically, I think there's a lot you could extrapolate from it, and I think the Gremlins, kind of like George A. Romero's zomb- zombies, kind of like can represent pretty much anything you want to put on them, right? Yeah, but I think ultimately we're watching a movie yeah. about strange little green things causing mayhem. Like you know, it's it's very intentionally a tongue-in-cheek throwback to 1950s B movies and stuff, and I think that's ultimately the intention. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that you could perhaps read it that way, but I think yeah, there's definitely that kind of suburban fear of you know violence yeah. carnage all that kind of like you know and especially like carnage created within suburbia as well because the gremlins are created by yeah. carelessness by Which just is why i think the people. metaphor so, of being like oh, it's about you know. outsiders destroying it isn't quite telling the whole story like i think it's more about like yeah as you say like the carelessness of the peltzer family creates the gremlins in the first place um yeah, and it's very much like that idea of like rampant commercialism and such is really reinforced by yeah. Mr. Peltzer being uh, a failed inventor who's just, all of his inventions are about convenience and quick and just like making money quickly and just making life quicker and more efficient and obviously the, what he calls the Peltzer pet that he wants to sell is, uh, it's very very cute and cuddly and then you can easily make more and it's, you know, it's very instantaneous and it's very in that sort of cash grabby kind of idea that he's got. And I think, yeah, that's definitely something there, especially considering, like, the merchandising yes. of this movie. Huge yes. part of it. So I'd like to think, knowing Joe Dante's work as I do, that, like, I think he definitely saw that element that the merchandising of this movie was going to be the thing and he kind of played that up a little bit because the second movie, Gremlins 2, which is also a fantastic film, um, plays that up to an even bigger degree and I think yeah and I think a lot of the sort of readings and criticisms that people may have of what they perceive in this movie I think Joe Dante kind of addresses in the sequel and sort of pokes fun at and kind of pokes holes in 
Um, perhaps not as seriously as some of these people making these assertions about the original movie would <laughs> like, but I think... Uh, yeah, it's interesting yeah. you say about the merchandising, because <laughs> this is something that, like, even though this movie came out in the 80s, the merchandise hung around for a long time. I remember people having... Like, I had a gizmo mm. uh, when I was a kid. Not one of the gizmo Furbies. Yeah. It's a little plushy gizmo. Yeah. But yeah, that's another thing. Gizmo, they, they made Furby gizmos. Tied in with Furby. And there was yeah. all kinds of merchandising and toys and stuff. It's very 80s in that regard, where like the aim of the movie is almost just to merchandise the shit out of it. Well, they, they're still making gremlin stuff. Mm. Like, uh, you know, like Nika, the sort of... Like they still make gremlins memorabilia that you can buy. They make like detailed gremlins figurines and stuff. Like, and I, one thing I do want to touch on is like, I'm kind of amazed we haven't had a new gremlins there movie is, or a gremlins. Yeah, there's an animated, oh, there's series, animated series. series of the Mogwai. which I've never seen and never heard anybody talk about. I think it's more for kids. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really. Hear. Which sure, whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm always kind, kind of, of there, weird like Gremlins product. Like, out. would I'm surprised they haven't tried to make a new Gremlins movie. But I think ultimately, it's. I know there's been one in the works a little while. I think the reason it's kind of why they probably development have, hell situation. I think the reason they haven't done it is that obviously these days the Gremlins would just be CGI, and I think the people that love the Gremlins movies just would not stand for that. Like, they have yeah. to be animatronic. They have to be. I think it could be a blend. Like you could use the CGI to cover stuff that the animatronics can't do. Yeah, because obviously, I mean, these days animatronics are typically puppeteered by people in like morph suits. You know, like uh, like the yeah. Chucky, um, the modern Chucky movies and like the Chucky TV series is all people in green suits puppeteering Chucky and stuff. So yeah, you could do that, but like the Gremlins themselves have to be animatronics. I think they have to be. Yeah, I agree. I don't. Also, I think it's one of those things where. I'm surprised they haven't pushed one out yet. But I think if you did a Gremlins 3 that didn't have any of the original cast in, that'd be shit. Yeah. Um, I think they could do... If they got Joe Dante back, I think they could do something interesting with it. I mean, I feel like, given what Gremlins... Because we talked a lot about Gremlins 2, because we were talking about the first movie. Um, yeah, that's kind of the thing. There's not a lot... Of, Going on. No, it's it's just it's it's very good fun. I love the scene at the bar where Phoebe Cates is uh, trying to tend to all the rowdy gremlins. Like that's good fun. And, <laughs> yeah. Like there's like a flasher gremlin, and then there's like one in like a balaclava that tries to rob her at gunpoint and stuff. Like there's lots of like good bits in this, but I think Gremlins Two is just a much more interesting film. And yeah. Um, ultimately, even though this one's very straightforward. Yeah, it's more straightforward. It's more cartoonish. Like it's I a weird comparison for me is that Gremlins Two reminds me a lot of Airplane in that they just cram yes. as many jokes into it as they feasibly can. Um, and I also kind of think, as much as it is a scourge on modern cinema, and we've talked about this quite a lot recently, Gremlins is kind of perfect fodder for like the Lego sequel because it would actively poke fun at it, I think. Cause yeah, in a way that even Scream didn't quite manage. Yeah, which is obviously a shame for me as somebody who enjoys the Scream movies. But yeah, I mean, like, Gremlins 2 is arguably, like, a template for how you do a legacy sequel. Like, it, you know, it, it references and pokes fun at and deconstructs the original in a really interesting way. And I think we don't need a Gremlins 3, though. No, we don't. At this point, just let it be a product of the past. We don't. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to it, you know? <laughs> So anyway, let's round this puppy off. 
Yeah, final thoughts, go on. Kino or Inferno? Oh, it's uh, it's a Kino for me. I've always loved Gremlins. I've loved it since I was a kid, even when I found it like a bit scary and upsetting with Gizmo being tortured and stuff. like This is always a film I loved as a kid, and revisiting it around Christmas time is always great because it's got that sort of Christmassy feel to it. Um and it's just it's just a lot of fun. I think it, it much like you know to compare it to Black Christmas. I think both of these movies do a really good job of seamlessly blending horror with comedy. Obviously, Gremlins is a lot more wacky um, and doesn't take itself nearly as seriously as what Black Christmas does. But they're both really good. Like I hate to use the phrase like alternative Christmas films because that's a really bullshit term. But like if you want something a bit more sinister for your Christmas viewing, Gremlins is a good starting point. Black Christmas is for later in the evening. You know when when you know when grandma's gone to bed, kind of thing. Grandma can get some kicks out of this. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to agree. I think this is a kino. Um, we've I feel like we've maybe not done the film justice, but it's a fairly inconsequential film in terms of what's going on in the movie. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, like I said, I think it's good Christmas viewing. It's kind of it's got a bit of an edge to it that a lot of Christmas films don't have. Yeah. Um, so kind of yeah it's a bit of fun and for kind of older kids as well it's kind of a fun movie to watch with your parents I guess because um, you know there's not like it's a bit gory and it's a bit cheeky but there's nothing too untoward in it you know no I think like the yeah the closest it gets to being unsuitable for kids is A the kitchen massacre scene which we're both on record now as saying is brilliant um, and also the first time you actually see a gremlin properly is like yeah it's like a jump scare um, which reminds me a lot of in The Howling, the, the jump scare where the woman's looking for the files, and then uh, she sort of looks over and like the werewolf hand is holding the file. It reminds me a lot of that. And I think Joe <laughs> yeah, Dante is yeah. really good at that. Um, yeah, I just think Gremlins is it's, it's just a great movie, and like, yeah, we could say we've not probably gone as deep on it as we need to, but everybody's seen Gremlins, everybody's seen it, everyone likes it. I don't know a single person that doesn't like Gremlins. Like, I just don't. <laughs> you know... <laughs> It's a great movie. Go fucking watch Gremlins. True that. Well, that was Crimbo Inferno uh, 2K23. The most sober of the Crimbo Infernos. Yeah, actually. I might be able to make my meeting tomorrow. I think (laughs) what the listeners need to know is that the next episode is going to be a New Year's quiz hosted once again by Adam Bragg, the Ragman. It might not be out on New Year's Day. Let's preempt that. But it's going to be New Year's adjacent. Um... And we are, if you want to hear not sober Aiden and Mark, we are very not sober in that episode. Oh, 100%. <laughs> There's some, some outrageous drunkenness on that episode. <laughs> but right, well. that's been, well, that's been Kino Inferno for 2023. Yep. Another it's year over. of endless bollocks. <laughs> Another year of chatting shit, mostly about the Halloween franchise. <laughs> we are sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but at least you know I was suffering too. It did. It's been a good year um, for me personally. I got to make you suffer. Right. And it will be returned. It will be avenged upon him. Oh, I can't wait. I'm excited. Feel my nipples. <laughs> good lord. Um, <laughs> so the next, the next time you'll hear from us after the New Year's special will be the start of a mini series, new format. Mm-hmm. Uh, trash to pieces. We can we say some of the films because we've not locked some of them in. Let's uh, say our first pick each. Let's say our first pick each. You go first. Okay. Okay. Well, my first pick for Trash to Pieces is Shock Treatment, sequel to Rocky Ugh. Horror Picture Show. 
<laughs> giving, the game, giving the game away a bit there by just going, ugh. <laughs> um, and my first pick, because um, we've got three picks each, it's going to be a six episode miniseries. Um, my first pick is the Wachowski Sisters uh, 2008 Opus Speed Racer. Can't wait for that. I mean, the thing that's funny about that, Mark, is you're acting all snobbish and superior there, but you know that the, if you could hear the audience responding to this live, you know that you going, shock treatment has made one person go, hmm. Whereas you know, that, you know for a fact with our audience that me saying Speed Racer has made at least 20 people go, fucking yes, boys. Aiden, I don't even know 20 people that have seen Speed Racer. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> Um, but yes, we'll each have uh, two more picks, uh, making a total of six. But yes, so our first one. We're probably going to start with Speed Racer and then do yeah. Shock Treatment after. Yeah, no, no fucking too. person's seen Shock Treatment, but people have seen Speed Racer. I, I don't know, but I think more people have seen. No, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. We'll get into this. anyway. Mate, on a yearly basis, there is an article that will float around that's like, "Hey, Speed Racer is pretty good, right?" Like th- this is a yeah, take the same article. <laughs> no, no, no. A new one. A new one comes out every year or so. And it's developing steam. This is why we're doing it in Trash to Pieces. It's developing steam as a, a cult classic. I'm not necessarily saying it is good. I'm just saying that it's building steam. Whereas I feel like Shock Treatment, you would have to admit, there's no steam there. Uh, well, I mean, that movie came out a good 20 years before Speed Racer, so it built steam long before Speed Racer, I feel. Shock Treatment yeah. is but we, well, we, have a, we simply do not have the time. We do not have the but time. But, like, what I'm saying is, I don't think it built up much steam at the time, and I think the steam has depleted. I mean, it got performed, it had a stage run recently, but we, we do not have the time. Where was that? <laughs> London. <laughs> Who saw that? Did well, apparently. Anyway, we're not, we're not talking about this now, Ed. <laughs> Who went, look, if you're listening and you went to the live show Shock Treatment, please write in, because <laughs> I want to understand your psychology. What made you do that? <laughs> I mean, if you saw Speed Racer in the cinema, genuinely, genuinely, never, please, never seen it. That. I'd never love to know. It. I'd love to know what people thought of Speed Racer when it was first out. Because I think we'll, we don't have time to get into it here. But I think the thing that's interesting about Speed Racer is like it. What it oscillates wildly between being like genuinely quite innovative and interesting, and being utter dreck. And sometimes it does so within the same scene. Which is kind of my, uh, I mean, that's why I chose it for trash pieces. <laughs> All I'm saying is, well, and speedheads, you'll know this, but any any scenes with the uh, the little boy and the chimp, get them in the bin. That's cutting room floor material. <laughs> anyway, you've got that to look forward to in 2024, probably in January, but um, we'll probably keep you, we'll keep you updated on that. Yeah, because the aim is to. Uh, to put out more episodes next year but kind of in shorter bursts we're going to do little bursts and then go away for a bit and then do little bursts again so we'll we'll average out with more episodes but you know in in kind of tighter clumps it's all about the clumps Mark as in Nutty Professor 2 is that what? as in Nutty Professor 2 the clumps um, we should probably end this podcast at some point Rather than just continuing to have a conversation that would be better had off mic. <laughs> anyway, look, that's been Crimbo Inferno. That's been 2023. I've been Aiden. I've been Mark. 
And I've been Santa Claus and I'm back from the dead. You can't keep me down. I'm like Michael Myers. Simply can't keep a player down. You can't, and I'm out here to empty my sack, and by God, I'll do it. object but beware it carries a terrible curse Ooh, that's bad but it comes with a free frogut that's good the frogut is also cursed that's bad but you get your choice of topping that's good the toppings contain potassium benzoate that's bad can i go now